Well, once again, welcome to Lynchburg City Church. My name is Joe. I am one of the pastors of the church. And uh, I am glad that you guys can be here tonight. I really am glad. We're in the book of Ruth. This is the fourth sermon in our series through Ruth. For the sake of visitors, new people, as well as our, our waning memories, I'd like to quickly recap what's taken place, for the sake of continuity, what's taken place throughout the first 21 verses of this story. The book is named after one of its main characters, Ruth. Ruth the Moabite. It is truly remarkable this story is, is named after Ruth. Truly remarkable, considering the fact of all the books in the Old Testament, all 39 books in the Old Testament, this is the only book that is named after a non-Israelite. Only book in the entire Old Testament named after a non-Israelite. More to the point, it's actually named after a Moabite. And that's, that's really significant, especially when you understand, you begin to understand the view that the Israelites had of the Moabites. Their perception. And there's lots of layers and levels to this perception, this low negative perception that they have. And we discussed a lot of those back in Sermon 1, but I'll tell you the one. You may remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham prays on behalf of his nephew's Lot family living in this city that they might be saved. God saves his family. His wife turns to a pillar of salt. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 19. Lot and his two daughters are living in a cave. And the two daughters are, are worried. They have a lot of anxiety like a, a lot of young women today. They're worried they're, they're never going to meet a guy. They're going to be single for the rest of their life. And they're, they're never going to get married. His daughter has this idea, a really bad idea, and the idea, and she convinces her little sister of it, is to get their dad drunk and then do married stuff with their dad so that they can at least have kids. That's, that's what happens. Probably the, I don't know, worst plan in all plans. The oldest daughter gives birth to a little baby boy named Moab. Moab. Ruth is a non-Israelite. She is a Moabite, a fact that both the narrator and one of the main characters, Boaz, mention and emphasize multiple times throughout this story. So the fact that this book is named after her, the only book in the Old Testament named after a non-Israelite, is truly remarkable. And while we don't know who the author of this story is, we do know that it was written sometime around 1010 BC, based on chapter 4 and the mention of the Davidic genealogy. David was coronated around 1010 B.C., which means that's really the earliest the story could have been written down. However, the events that have transpired within the story would have occurred at least a hundred years earlier, during the days and times of the judges. It's a very dark time within Israel's history. This is pre-Israelite monarchy. No kings have come along yet, just the judges. It's a very dark time. And the story... Sinners in Bethlehem, which you may remember means house of bread. And the irony used multiple times by the narrator is that there is no food in the house of bread. Right? This is like saying the Wonder Bread bakery had no bread. Like, how does that make sense? There's a famine. And the story centers in Bethlehem with a man named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, their two sons, Malon and Kilion. And Elimelech is in a tough situation. There's no food, so what are you going to do? Well, he finds out that apparently there's food in Moab, so he makes the decision to move his family to Moab. At first glance, this doesn't seem like a big deal. Makes the move. But as we said, it has tragic consequences. So gentlemen, the decisions we make for our families 
affect more than just us. Really need to keep that in mind. Elimelech seems to weigh everything through this economic lens and ultimately relying upon his own resources, his own self-sufficiency, and his own ingenuity to get through this difficult time. They make the decision. They move to Moab. Elimelech dies. His two sons get into relationships. They've got no business getting into. Some of you, you're in relationships with people. Honestly, you really have no business being in. Truthfully, you know it. Other people know it. And they end up marrying these women, these Moabite women, which according to Deuteronomy 7, wasn't strictly prohibited, but it was highly frowned upon. And then the two sons die, Malon and Kilion. Why? Why did Elimelech move the family to Moab so they wouldn't die? And now they're dead. Naomi's buried her husband. She's buried her two sons. It's tragic. Truly tragic. But there is a little hope. Verse 6, God comes. He visits his people. He intervenes on behalf of his people. He comes to the aid on behalf of his people. He brings back the rains. The famine is lifted. Naomi hears about this while she's in the fields of Moab. She makes the decision to move back to Bethlehem. And of course, during this time, this 10 plus years that she's been in Moab, she's grown very close to her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And naturally, they want to come with her. But Naomi says, no, you can't come. It's not that she doesn't love her daughters. As those of you who have been here, you understand Within the ancient Near East, how significant it is for a woman to make it, just just make it economically, would be directly linked to having another male in her life to provide and take care of her, be it a father, a husband, or if she was widowed, sons. So Naomi knows, Naomi knows that it's best for them to stay in Moab and get remarried. She knows what the Israelite perception of Moabites is. And she knows that if her two daughters come along with her, they'll have a very difficult time socially integrating into this society, let alone, let alone finding a guy to marry. Like, all bets are off for that. And so she tells them they need to go back. And so they have this conversation back and forth. They're crying. They're saying, no, we don't want to go. She's like, yes, you need to go. She's saying, you know, and along this time, uh, Naomi makes some very troubling remarks that is very troubling for, I think, anyone who has a Yahwistic worldview, a biblical worldview. Um, and Naomi, much like her husband Elimelech, seems to only evaluate things through this economic lens. She, almost like her husband, seems to have forgotten the very name that uh, her husband's name means, that is, my God is king. And so she tells them that they need to go they need to go back. And along the way, she makes troubling remarks. She, she talks about how bitter she is, how God's been so unfair and unjust. Finally, Orpah leaves after much persuading. And then verse 15, she makes more troubling comments. She, she tells Ruth, listen, Orpah's already gone back. She's gone to her people. She's gone back to her gods. You need to as well. Might not be that big of a deal. As I said, this would be like if my mom, if I died, if Diana had an Islamic background, she's like, Diana, you need to go back. Economically, it just makes the most sense. You need to go back to your people, go back to Allah, go back to Islam. Naomi's saying some really troubling things. As one commentator rightly said, if Naomi was the greatest example of faith, it's no wonder God brought the famine in the first place. Of course, Ruth then in verses 16, 17, she gives the poetic, where you go, I will go, your people will be my people line. She convinces Naomi to let her go along with her. Naomi's like, all right, fine. They show up in Bethlehem. 
She hasn't been there in at least 10 years. They're all like, Naomi, Naomi, all the people come out. Is it really you? She says, oh, don't call me Naomi. There's nothing pleasant. That's what her name means. There's nothing pleasant about my life. Okay? Instead of calling me Mara, bitter, because God has been so bitter, treated me so terribly. And that's where we pick up in today's text. Verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. I was talking to Diana. She was like, why didn't you just include verse 22 in last week's sermon? It just left hanging there by itself right before you start chapter 2. Keep in mind, guys, when this book was written, when all these books were written, there's no chapter and verses separating them. Okay. In fact, verse 22 really is the opening scene to the second act for um, those of you who enjoy plays. This is really the second act. Verse 22 gives some very pivotal information from the narrator. There is critical information in verse 22. They come to Bethlehem at barley harvest. Barley harvest. This would have been... Late March, early April. Of all the times that they should arrive, they came at barley harvest. You see, the barley was, it was the first of all the crops to be harvested, which means they came at the precise moment when they were starting to harvest all the crops for the rest of the year, which means they would have had plentiful food to store up for the year. A critical moment that they should arrive precisely at the beginning of barley harvest. Spooky. Or providential, you might say. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. New character gets introduced. Some dude named Boaz. And we find out he's actually related through marriage to Naomi. And he's of the clan of Elimelech. That is, he's of the clan, the tribe, just clarifying the fact that he's a relative of Elimelech. And he's a, a worthy man. A worthy man. Another way to say that is a man of substance, a man of wealth. And as we'll see, he is. He's got land. He's got servants. He is a, a worthy man. He's not an ordinary, run-of-the-mill guy. Then verse 2. It says this, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. She says, Let me go. Let me go. Or or it might be better to say, You know, please, this is a polite request. Please let me go. That I might go and glean, that I might find favor. I might go glean among the ears of grain after him. The him is, could be, Whoever or himever in whosever sight I shall find favor. It's not referring back to Boaz. It's just a general hope that she has that she might find favor in doing this. Now see, what you have to understand is, is this. Gleaning is different than ordinarily harvesting. See, when you gleaned, it involved picking up ears of grain that the harvesters had inadvertently dropped or left standing. Within Mosaic law, there was a prescription that you'd leave the corners of the field untouched and if you harvested anything, you dropped it, you left it there. This was kind of essentially like a social welfare type program to take care of widows, orphans, or foreigners. 
Okay, so, so if you have a field, you're not supposed to harvest the edges of the field. And anything you do harvest, if you drop it on the ground, you leave it. It's part of the, the social welfare program so poor people could come in and, and they could have food. Which makes her statement seem kind of strange when she says, well, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him who's in whose sight I shall find favor. She's hoping to find favor, but why? See, what I didn't know is this. Even though that was a prescription within the Mosaic law that you couldn't harvest the, the edges of the field, and if anyone who was harvesting dropped it, and that was for the, the economically lower classes, what I didn't know is this. The right to go and glean would often and frequently be denied to the destitute. So this is, this is within Mosaic law, but you could be turned away if you came to the field. People sometimes wouldn't let you come. In fact, the commentator says, frequently this happened. So she's essentially telling Naomi, like, listen, like, I just, I want to try to do whatever I can to try and make it here as an outsider. And hopefully I'll find favor with someone, some person. I'm going to go glean. And Naomi says, go, my daughter. It's really strange that she says, go, my daughter. Because normally when Naomi talks, she's talks more than she probably should. When, when Naomi has something to say, it usually involves her telling about how miserable her life is. And she's just like really negative. Some of you have friends like that. It's like whenever they open their mouths, it's just negative, negative. As we said last week, Naomi is really the original Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Okay, Christopher Robbins, uh, Tigger, like the, the whole lot. Like Naomi is Eeyore. She's always talking about how God's made her life so bitter, how he's been so unfair, how he's been so unjust to her. And yet here in verse 2, she just says, okay, go my daughter. What's going on with Naomi? It, it seems possible, possible, maybe, maybe not, but maybe God's doing something in her life right now. Like perhaps the, the bitterness that she's had throughout this story, perhaps maybe it's subsiding. The anger, the resentment that she has toward God, maybe, just maybe, he's starting, he's working on her heart and, and she's working through these things. Perhaps. And then verse three. Verse 3, so she, this would be Ruth, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So she goes out, and of all the fields she could have come to, she happens, or chanced upon, or by a stroke of luck, comes to a field belonging to Boaz. That's interesting. We'll talk more about that later. There's a lot to unpack in verse 3. I'm going to come back to it. We'll jump to verse 4. Verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Also interesting. Boaz happens to go check on his fields that same day. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. The narrator shows us a man from start to finish is a gracious man, is a good man, is a noble man, is a righteous man. From start to finish, he's characterized in his speech as just very gracious and good. And so he shows up to check on his fields in verse 4, and then he realizes that something's very out of place. 
Something's different today. Verse 5, Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, this would be like his general manager, he says, hey, come here. He said, girl over there. He said, whose young woman is this? The young woman, probably reflecting the fact that Boaz may be considerably older than her, he says, hey, who's that girl over there? Right? Some of you guys have done that before. <laughs> Multiple guys have done that before, apparently. <laughs> Ruth stands out for some reason. Narrator doesn't tell us. Maybe she was really pretty. Maybe she was really tall. Maybe she was really short. Maybe she dressed differently. Maybe he overheard her accent. And he, he could tell that she spoke differently. But for whatever reason, she stands out. It's very obvious. It's very apparent that she stands out. That she's different. Boaz realizes that right away. And so he pulls his general manager over. He says, hey, who's that? And verses 6 and 7, the GM gives the response. He says, verse 6, And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, Oh, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So the GM says, yeah, she showed up today. I'm not sure what her name is. She belongs to Naomi. She's the Moabite girl that came back with her. And she's been working here in the field. She came and asked if she could glean. I said, yes. And she's been working here until you just showed up. So Boaz is thinking this over. Okay. Gets the information, thinks on it, and then goes in verse 8 and decides to introduce himself to her. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Now this isn't, he's not being patronizing. Once again, the, the, the phrase my daughter reflects that there is a considerable age difference perhaps between the two of them. He's, he's being the older one. He says in verse 8 and 9, Now listen, my daughter. Do not glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. He seems to have a genuine sense of compassion. Even a little sense of responsibility for Ruth, despite the fact that she's not like him. Despite the fact that she's different. Despite the fact that she's a Moabite. And yet, he's very kind to her. Remember, Mosaic law prescribed, you had to leave the corners of the field untouched. You drop any of the things you harvest, you have to leave it, right? Prescription for the poor, the widows, the orphans. But there's no guarantee that you come into a field that they're going to let you, let you glean. So he says, hey, Ruth, yeah? Okay. You don't need to go to any other fields. You just come to my field, okay? Don't worry about going to other fields, getting permission to do that. You just come to my field. You can have, you can glean as much as you want to. See my female servants over there? You just hang out with them. Stay with them. You'll be good to go. And by the way, if, if, if you're thirsty, you need water. So the canteen's over there. Have as much water to drink as possible. Now that might not seem like a big deal. We take water oftentimes very much for granted. Throw the faucet on. Hit the water fountain. This is a big deal. See, presumably what would happen at the beginning of each and every day 
They'd leave the town, they'd go to the fields, and they'd stop by the well. They'd fill up their canteens with water, canteens, containers, whatever. And then they'd carry it to the work site so that they'd have water to replenish them during the day. The only thing that's really interesting here is that within this culture, the people who would normally draw the water would either be a foreigner or women. And Ruth is both. And he tells her, the water over there that my, that my dude servants have filled up, yeah, you can drink that. No big deal. That is a big deal. That's a huge deal. He's being very kind to her. He's being very gracious to her. And then he says this. I don't know if you caught it. He also lets her know. He says, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Boaz noticed her almost immediately. She, st- she stands out for whatever reason. And Boaz knows that if he noticed her immediately, odds are other people are going to notice her too. And someone who is a woman and a foreigner could easily be the victim of abuse in this culture. And so he comes, he says, listen, by the way too, this is a safe place. Okay? You, you don't need to worry about anybody else. No one's going to mistreat you. No one's going to give you a hard time. I already talked to them. And in fact, yeah, and, and if there is a problem, you come talk to me, I'll, I'll clear it up real quick. Wow. Boaz. He's a stud. <laughs> He's a good man. He's a righteous man. He's a caring man. He's a noble man. He is what right looks like. He's so kind to Ruth. He's so good to Ruth. He's an example to us, church. What should I be like? Be like Boaz. Are you like him? See, some of you, you're only like Boaz if there's something you can get in return. Like, okay, I'll be like Boaz if she's pretty or if he's pretty. Oftentimes it's the only time you're like Boaz. Right? If there's, if there's maybe a chance that you can gain an advantage within a relationship, then you're like Boaz. Boaz is kind. He's got no ulterior motives right now. He's kind. He's good. Let's know, listen, no one's going to mess with you. This is a safe place. Church, this is what we should be like to other people. And historically, the church has failed terribly in this area. People come in. They're not welcome. People aren't kind to them. It's not a safe place. At all. At all. It should be. It's not. We should be like Boaz. We often aren't. Oftentimes people, they don't want to come. Say, I'm not going to fit in. There's not a place for me. I'm different. And they feel very self-conscious, much like Ruth does. Why is that? i got to think to a certain degree, that's on us. I think at Lynchburg City Church, you guys do a a pretty darn good job. I think we always can be better. I think we always can, can improve and be more like Boaz. But guys, this doesn't happen oftentimes doesn't, the church oftentimes is not a safe place. Sometimes it's a scary place. People aren't kind. They're not like Boaz. And that's ridiculous. 
That's truly ridiculous. My sister, she's not a Christian. She turns 21 later this week. She didn't grow up, she's my half-sister, so she didn't grow up like with me or my mom. Wasn't a disciple, didn't learn the Bible, didn't learn about Jesus. Biblically illiterate, doesn't, doesn't know no Jack. Um, she probably opened the Bible I gave her maybe a dozen times, I don't know. She does, you understand, okay, what, what I'm trying to say. I remember one day, you know, and the only time that she comes to church too, like if I'm, if, if she's here, she comes to visit me infrequently, she comes. If I'm there in Alaska, she'll come, but she doesn't go. So I think I painted a clear picture. She calls me up one day, crying. She went with a friend, we asked her to come to church. Church. And she gets in there, and they tell her, oh, I'm so sorry, sweetie. They always say, sweetie. But we have a dress code here, so if you'd like to listen to the rest of the sermon, you can do so in the lobby. Maybe an extreme example. Maybe. But the fact is, whether it's an extreme or a partial example, that's freaking ridiculous. And that happens more than you may think. Maybe it's not to that extreme point. You want to upset older brother? You get that phone call. Have your little sister crying not understanding why she wasn't welcome, why people weren't kind to her. Oh, that we might be like Boaz. He's kind. He's generous. He creates a safe place for her. He says, Ruth, no one's going to mess with you. No one's going to mistreat you. No one's going to abuse you. It's okay here. That's what we should be, church. I'll let you know right now. You don't have to have it all together to come to Lynchburg City Church. I'm not going all liberal and excusing like sin. That's not, that's not what's happening here. But you don't have to have it all together. You can come here and be like Ruth and feel like you don't fit in. Early on in the church, one of my buddies, he said, man, it almost feels like the island of misfit toys here. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, it seems oftentimes it's like all the kids you wouldn't see at the cool kids table. And I said, man, how great is that? Oh, that we might be like that. The church, the people of God might be kind and generous. They might make people feel safe. Like Boaz did for Ruth, who was very self-conscious already that she didn't fit in, that she was somehow inadequate. If you're new today, I'll just tell you right now, Lynchburg City Church is that place. Okay? We will be like Boaz in that regard. And I'll tell you the same thing that Boaz told Ruth. Like, listen, like I've already instructed everybody to be kind and not to mistreat you. And essentially, if, if, that, if something happens, you come talk to me. If there's a problem, you come talk to me, and I'll take care of it. Because we don't have the time or the luxury not to be like Christ to the unreached peoples of this world and of this city. People are dying and going to hell. People that are in your dorms or at work. Let this sink in for a moment. So Ruth has her mind blown. I mean, 
She doesn't get this at all. Very self-conscious. It's very clear in, in verse 10 that she is this self-conscious. It says then, verse 10, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to them, she said to him, Poaz, why have, why have I found favor in your eyes that, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? I said she's self-conscious. She knows she stands out. She knows that apparently she doesn't seem like she fits in. You're like, why are you being so kind? You want to blow people's minds? It's when you're like, Boaz to other people, church. They're like, I don't get this. Why are you being so kind and so nice to me? Why should, why, why should I have, have deserved this, this treatment? Insert gospel. Right, Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us. Like He shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Boaz explains to her, because she's confused, why she should find such favor with him. He explains why. In verse, uh, verse 11 12, But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. So I've heard, I've heard this. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He says, listen, I heard about how kind you were to your mom. Naomi, your, your mother-in-law, you didn't have to be, you were. I want to bless you. And he says, I also heard about how you left your people. Remember what we said last week. Naomi tries to convince Ruth to stay. Naomi's the realist. She views things through an economic lens, black and white. Ruth is the risk taker. She's the optimist, and she's incredibly loyal. Boaz understands, he would have understood just how big a deal this was, and it definitely would have hit home. Perhaps he even recalled how his ancestor, Abraham, centuries earlier in Genesis 12, did something very similar to what she did. And so she says this in verse 13, Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes. Remember verse 2? She tells Ruth, she tells Naomi, I'm going to go glean, and I'm hoping I can find favor in someone's eyes. Notice what she says now. I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I, I'm not even one of your servants. Why was Boaz so kind to her? So good to her? Well, he gives the reasons, but I think there are reasons unanswered. You want to know why Boaz was so kind to Ruth? I think it's because God had been preparing Boaz for Ruth. God had been preparing Boaz for Ruth. I think that's, that's why. This isn't chance. I said there was a lot to unpack in verse 3. This isn't chance. I think God's been preparing Boaz for Ruth. Look back at verse 3, and we'll close with verse 3. 
so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She happened to. She chanced upon it by a stroke of luck. It's interesting that the narrator should say it that way, almost as if he is viewing the situation through Ruth's eyes. At least to her, it it seems like this was just a a stroke of luck by chance. Of all the fields she could have gone to, she comes to that. And yet, if you know anything about Israelite theology, you know that the Hebrews do not believe in chance. They do not believe in random. I was talking to Rabbi Goldman this summer, and I've had these same conversations with him. They do not believe in chance or luck or randomness. Or have you not heard the ancient proverb? That man may cast the lot or roll the dice, but the Lord determines its every decision. Proverbs 16, 33. Man may cast the lot, roll the dice, but its every decision is determined by God. They do not believe in chance. Of course, that's not just Israelite theology. That's my theology as well. I hope will be your theology as well. She chanced upon this field. Wrap your mind around that for a moment. See, see, the author, once again, is, excuse me, the narrator, author, is essentially using intentional irony here. Trying to undermine any type of rational explanation for the situation. As one commentator says, he is essentially screaming, look what God is doing here! Look! Do you not see it? This isn't chance, this is providence. Think it through. Verse 1, God sends the famine. Chapter 1, verse 6, God intercedes, relieves the famine. Verse 22, Ruth and Naomi show up at barley harvest at the precise time when it would be most favor, favorable for them to come up, to, to, to get there. Verse 2, she says she hopes that she might find favor. She's going to go glean in the field. Verse 3, of all the fields she should come across, she happens to come across Boaz's field. Verse 4, Boaz happens to check on his field that very day. Verse 5, Boaz notices her in the field. Verse 8, Boaz introduces himself to her and shows great kindness to her. Chance? (laughs) I think not. God is at work. He's in the life, he's in work in the life of Ruth, in the life of Naomi, in the life of Boaz. He's at work in their lives, and he's at work in your life right now. It may not seem like he is, he is. One of my favorite John Piper quotes is this. God may at any time, God may at any time be doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of like three of them. But sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Especially when you've buried people and when you've said goodbye to people that you love and care about. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way at all. And sometimes you can't see how God could possibly be working until... I don't know, 10 years later. Or sometimes not even in this life. 
It's, it's not by chance, right? He brings the famine, verse 1. He lifts this famine, verse 6. They show up at barley harvest in 22. In 2-2, two, two, she hopes she'll find favor. In verse 3, she wanders upon Boaz's field of all the fields. In verse 4, he happens to show up and check on his field that day. In verse 5, he notices her. In verse 8, he introduces himself to her. You think that's chance? God's at work! And he's at work in your life today just as much as he was in the lives of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. He's at work, and that should be of such comfort to you And knowing that your God is big, your God is huge, or as Limelech's name says, my God is king. He is. He's king. He's big. Anytime you're doing 10,000 things in your life and you're aware of like, I don't know, one This story is about providence. It's about a giant God, king of the universe, who has not left his people, who is there working unknown in and around their lives. That same God is the same God that we worship today. I hope that encourages some of you. I hope that encourages some of you who maybe feel like you've just drifted and maybe feel like he's forgotten about you. Maybe feel discouraged. I love that Piper quote. Anytime you may be doing 10,000 things in your life and you're aware of like three of them. He's so big. He is the God King. So as the band comes... I'd like to just pray for us. We love you, Jesus. You are good. You are great. You lived the life we could not live. You died the death we should have died. You paid the price we could not afford to pay. We owe you everything. And we, were, we, we are thankful for this story, this reminder. As the Limelech name says, my God is king. And that there is no such thing as chance and randomness to you. That you are working in our lives right now. And some of us, we don't even know that you are. We're not even aware of it. Oh, I pray that would boost our faith. That would encourage us. That would just pump us up. I pray that you would lift the hurting hearts in here the sad hearts, the discouraged, oh, that you would be a source of encouragement because you are the same God, the same God that came and interceded in Ruth and Naomi and Boaz's life. You are the same God. And we thank you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.